Hi, welcome to episode 55 of Mosin at Large. We'll check in and find out how COVID-19 is affecting people around the world. We'll hear about your GPS apps of choice. We'll apply the concept of equivalency to a recent decision made by Apple. And Bonnie and I demonstrate my updated Alexa skill. Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. As always, it's a pleasure to be back with you. I look forward to this time every week, finding out what's on your mind and having a bit of a chat about all kinds of things. It's been a while since we really checked in in any depth on how you're doing in terms of COVID-19. And it's so variable. Here, where we are in New Zealand, we are about to reach 100 days without any community transmission. So our borders are closed. You can only get into New Zealand at the moment if you are a resident or a citizen or you have some sort of special reason for being here. There's some kind of special work requirement and you've received permission from the government. And that's obviously not sustainable. The plan is, I think, to keep the borders largely locked down until such time as a vaccine arrives. And you can see the danger of not doing that with all of the community transmission that is rampant in many parts of the world at the moment. But what it means is that for those of us who are here, work has gone back to normal. Obviously, there are certain industries that are dependent on tourism and several other things that have been very hard hit. And I think we are due for a major economic shock eventually, which has been somewhat cushioned at the moment by wage subsidies that are still in effect for the hardest hit industries. They don't have too long to go now before they expire. Wearing a mask is not required because there's no community transmission detected at this point. Now, interestingly, a few months ago, you'll remember I was talking on this podcast about masks and how there seemed to be this conflicting science. 
New Zealand was saying, for example, we neither recommend nor require the use of masks. And in Britain, for a long time, they had some pretty eminent scientists saying, you know, the jury's still out about masks. They might do more harm than good. Now it seems that everybody is coalescing around the efficacy of masks. And the New Zealand government this week has changed its advice on masks. And they've said it's a good idea to have some masks at home in case there is community transmission, in which case they will be recommending the wearing of masks. So that debate appears to have been won. And that's good. It's really concerning when people genuinely want to do the right thing and there is conflicting scientific advice from eminent people who supposedly know what it is that they are doing. But more to the point, how are you doing? How are things for you? What are you experiencing? I know that when the pandemic first really started to bite, grocery deliveries were a huge problem. And some blind people who had real issues with getting to the supermarket, maintaining social distancing, were finding that very tough. So I'm keen to hear how that's all going for you now. Also, whether you are finding that you're being shunned by people because it is hard to maintain social distancing. I think it's hard when you're blind full stop, but it's particularly hard, I think, for guide dog handlers because the dogs don't understand social distancing. They're not trained to observe social distancing. So how's that going? I did read about and then subsequently heard about on the In Touch program on the BBC a woman with Usher's syndrome, and she was having a conversation with her sister on the train. And there is guidance in the UK that says if you have an impairment where wearing a mask could cause a problem, then you are exempt from the mask-wearing requirement. For example, it's generally compulsory to wear masks on public transport. But a woman who was traveling with her sister, the woman had Usher's syndrome. The sister was trying to communicate with her, so she is vision-impaired and hearing-impaired. And because you could see a little bit and hear a little bit, the woman on the train got very angry and said that they were just flouting the rules basically and uh, somebody captured it on youtube and it went a bit viral so it is a tough time out there also of course we have contact tracing technology to contend with how is that going for you this appears to be quite variable around the world and this is one area where new zealand has been terrible in my opinion we have a contact tracing app which i did praise because it seems like it was getting off to a promising start in the sense that for the most part, at least the iOS version, which is the one that I'm using, conforms to Apple's accessibility guidelines. But fundamentally, it's still not really usable by a blind person because it's based on QR codes. So the way our contact tracing system has worked is that businesses are expected to print out these QR codes, put them somewhere prominent, and then when you go to a business, you're supposed to use the contact tracing app that the government has provided to scan that QR code. And it keeps a record of your locations where you've been on your device. And it's only accessed with your consent if they contact you to let you know that somebody has caught COVID-19 
and there's a possibility that you could be at risk. The advice from the tech people who seem to have the government's ear at the moment appears to be that even with the Google Apple contact tracing API, the technology just isn't reliable enough, which is interesting because it appears to be gaining some traction around the world now. And I believe there are quite a number of US states and I think the Canada app and possibly the Irish app that I know of already has the contact tracing API from Apple and Google. And I think there are some other countries in Europe as well. So I'm keen to hear how this is going for you. What they're doing now here in New Zealand is looking at the possibility of a thing called a contact card. And they're trialing this in one town here in New Zealand, where you essentially have a credit card type device. And I think it's using a mix of RFID and Bluetooth, but it's completely standalone from your phone. And it's simply looking at contacts rather than location. So they're trying that because it's going to be expensive to roll it out. I just don't understand why they don't embrace the contact tracing API. (laughs) But maybe you can let me know how that has been working for you in practice. So do be a Mosin at Large reporter. Get in touch from wherever you happen to be and let us know how it's all been going for you. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is the email address an audio attachment or just a written email is fine. And the listener line number 864-60-MOSIN in the United States, 864-606-6736. Now, Harold Wilson, the former British prime minister, said that a week is a long time in politics. And it's true, man. We've certainly had plenty of evidence of that in New Zealand in recent times. A week can also be a long time in technology. Little did I know, when I was here this time last week, that by today I would be coming to you from a super-duper shiny, substantially rebuilt PC. So I'll tell you what happened. Let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start, oh dear. In 2018, I was having a conversation with my wonder son-in-law, Henry, That's Heidi's husband. Heidi sometimes appears on Mosin at Large and some of my other radio endeavors. Actually, sometimes Henry does too. And I don't know how this got started, but he said, what would your ideal PC look like? And we had a kind of a brainstorming session and we decided we would build this PC because Henry actually loves to build PCs. He enjoys doing it for people and he charges a little bit for his time and just enjoys making them go. And he's very good at it, actually. He knows what he's doing. And we decided we'd go ahead and build this PC. Now, the one point of slight contention was that I was pretty dead set on getting an Intel processor in this machine. And Henry convinced me that I might be being a bit old school about this. Because when AMD processors first came along, There were some compatibility issues, and I said, I'm just a little bit nervous about it. And he said, no, they've moved on. They've come a long way. It's really not a problem anymore. And you get better processor power for less, better bang for your buck. So I decided, all right, we'll put this AMD thing in there. And it was a very fast machine. It was going really well. When we initially set it up, we had a couple of issues with the BIOS, which needed to be updated. So we had a bit of a false start. I was halfway there. 
in terms of getting my computer configured to my precise <laughs> sort of finicky requirements. And, and then the BIOS had a bit of a problem and we needed to update the BIOS and start again. So that was a bit of a problem. But other than that, it has worked quite well. And fortunately, I was heading over to the United States where I could pick up a really cheap but high quality two terabyte solid state hard drive. And we've got 32 gigs of RAM in here, and it was a very nice machine. But every so often, the computer would spontaneously reboot, or if you don't like your infinitive split, and I don't blame you if you don't like your infinitive split, it would reboot spontaneously. And it didn't do it often enough for me to be too concerned, although something in the back of my mind always said, what happens if it does this? when I'm broadcasting live, but it never did. I think if it did, I would have taken action a bit sooner. In recent times, though, it seems to have started rebooting spontaneously a bit more often. And so I had a chat to Henry and I said, how can we track down what's causing this? One of the things that I did notice when it was rebooting spontaneously was that when it did this, my old audio interface, which was a complete Audio 6, really nice audio interface, would not be there. I'd have to unplug it and plug it back in again from the USB port to make it recognize, which was a strange anomaly. And it made me think that maybe the audio interface is to blame in some way. And I was looking at new audio interfaces anyway. And as you know, if you were listening last week, we are now rocking the Focusrite Scarlett 8i6. And notwithstanding the terrible accessibility of the, well, it's completely inaccessible, the um, Focusrite control panel for Windows. I'm very pleased with the way that it's performing. But it really came to a head for me when I was on a Zoom call the other day and it rebooted in the middle of a Zoom call. I was just chatting away, not into the dozen. And uh, I, I suddenly found myself being rebooterated right in the middle of quite an important Zoom call. And I thought, that is ridiculous. And then I went to do some voice tracking for Mushroom FM, and it rebooted in the middle of that. And we had tried to track it down. So we had installed software that monitors the temperature. There was no problem with the temperature. Everything was going okay. Fans were working properly. There was nothing untoward in the Windows logs. You know, we'd done all of that troubleshooting stuff. And I knew that we'd probably reach the point where we would have to start swapping out components. Shall we try replacing the power supply? Shall we try replacing the RAM? You know, on and on it goes. And because I've had this thing in the back of my mind, that I really would have preferred an Intel processor. And I actually did come across something, and I can't remember what it was now, but I think it was audio-related two or three weeks ago, which specifically would not work if you didn't have an Intel processor. So Henry was quite keen to do a rebuild. And I get this, because I like shopping for technology with people, you know, because they spend the money and I get the thrill of seeing new gear and selecting new gear and stuff like that. So I quite often get dragged along with friends or family to computer shop or technology shop for people because they want my advice and and I enjoy it, not having to get my own credit card out at the end. So we chose this really very nice Intel 
motherboard. It has built-in Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. And I don't obviously use the Wi-Fi. We're hardwired to the LAN to get the full effect of the gigabit fiber plan that we have. But Wi-Fi is a nice backup because if my ISP goes down, I have unlimited data on my mobile plan and I can connect using personal hotspots. So that's very nice. It has built-in Bluetooth, but more importantly, it has eight cores, 16 threads, still got the 32 gigs of RAM. This thing is so fast. I mean, when I run things like Microsoft Outlook, where there was definitely a, a launch period on the old machine, it's just almost instant now. I've never seen anything like it. It boots very quickly, but it hasn't been a smooth trip to get here because it was such a radical change of componentry. It did involve a reinstall of Windows and we had to change the power supply and it was all a bit of a mission. And it's kind of stressful, you know, when you're trying to get this thing up and running because you've got things that need to be done. But Henry spent a lot of time here while I was working away on other devices, uh, getting the work done. And also Heidi was assisting she was my quick software installator. That's a good word. I've, I've, I've crowned a new word, uh, quick software installator. Well, hopefully we're not jinxing it and that this is all sounding okay and that it doesn't reboot anymore and things like that. But it has been, while an unexpected series of expenses, very worthwhile because everything is just rocking along at so much faster a pace it feels really good to work with. I'm kind of pleased to be in with the Intel land. And actually, the onboard sound is surprisingly good. It does look like Realtek, but obviously this is high-end enough for them to take the audio seriously because even the onboard sound has so many inputs and outputs, it's almost befuddling, and it has an ACO driver. So you can actually use the built-in sound with Reaper with fairly good latency and ACO support. So I'm pleased. Uh, we're all up and running, not too many glitches, and I hope to heck I'm not jinxing it by saying so. So welcome to the machine. Adi writes in from India. He says, Hi, Jonathan. It was interesting to read about your bad tech karma episode. Would just like to share a few of my tech karma experiences of the past few weeks. It was a nice sunny afternoon in July. Oh, this sounds like a very nice story. It needs music. Can we just can we just rustle up a bit of music here for this? Hang on. All right, all right, all right. Hey, there we go. Try this. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It was a nice sunny afternoon in July. I had a sumptuous breakfast and then finished listening to the awesome Mosin at Large podcast on my Bose frames and had a webinar on Zoom. I was just one of the speakers and had to speak for 20 minutes on headphones and smart speakers and their benefits to the blind. I logged in on my HP laptop after I was done with my headphone information sharing and had just started speaking about smart speakers. My laptop stopped functioning just all of a sudden. I did manage to log into Zoom via my iPhone and take the remainder of my session, but the experience was scary. I was thinking for quite some time to get myself a new laptop. Now my new HP laptop sits on the desk next to me. Oh no! 
the music ran out. Well, we'll just have to soldier on. <laughs> While the old one is also now functioning well, it was with me for 63 months. The only dark side is that now the price of laptops, at least in India, has gone up by approximately 80 to to $100 as compared to February and early March prices. On August the 1st, I had got myself a talking weighing scale. Well, it did everything right except talk. I had to contact the vendor and they had to get the product replaced. Yesterday, I got a functional talking weighing machine. And you know what? What the problem is now? It talks my weight and I cannot even begin to tell you how many kilos I've put on during the lockdown. Guess it was better when the machine was silent. Yes, be careful what you wish for, Addy. I am a huge fan, he continues, of Bose frames. My Sunday is incomplete without listening to Mosin at Large through my frames. In the recent few weeks, I have done a few webinars and experience sharing on Bose frames and how this can be a very useful product for the visually challenged. I think he means blind. Quite a few have also written back to me that post my experience sharing, they have got Bose frames and are loving it. On July the 17th, my frames suddenly stopped functioning. They were neither getting powered on nor charged. I was distraught. My warranty was expiring on July the 20th. It's always the way, isn't it? However, all Bose stores were shut and also the customer care numbers were non-functional. Additionally, my city was amidst a 10-day strict lockdown. Once the service centre opened, walk-ins were not allowed. I had a lot of mail communication with the vendor and finally they agreed to arrange for pickup of the frames. From previous experience, I knew that these generally do not get repaired, but only replaced. The company replaced the product for me, and yesterday I got a packed unit of Bose frames. Now I breathe better. And yes, your podcast is so good that during the interim I did not have my frames. I enjoyed Mosin at Large as much as always. There you go, Addy. I love happy ever after stories. Hey, Jonathan, this is John Wesley Smith from Missouri, weighing in on the question of computer versus iPhone. If you had to absolutely make the choice, I would go with the computer. And one of the reasons that I haven't learned more about my iPhone is because I can do so much on the computer that I'm already familiar with and so on. I would love to be able to learn more on the iPhone and do some things so that I'm not as dependent on the computer and I could have some portability. But I really don't like the touch screen all that much. I have... Uh, thought about getting a blind shell phone, but I don't have the means to do that at this point in time. I really like the uh, the keypad, and uh, I use the heck out of my Victor Reader Stream <laughs> for podcasts and, uh, and things like that. So I try to uh, make the most of uh, each device that I have for what meets my needs. And, and again, you know, I probably would learn the uh, the phone better, but there's kind of the disincentive since I can already do so much on the computer and on the stream as well. Christopher Wright agrees. He says, technically, smartphones are computers as well. But if I had to get rid of one, it would definitely be the smartphone. I would use my GPD Win, a GPD Pocket or a similar device. The GPD Win is a Windows laptop that's roughly the size of a Nintendo 3DS. It includes nearly a full QWERTY keyboard 
an assortment of game controls including joysticks, a USB 3 port, a micro SD slot, a mini HDMI port, a USB-C port, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, etc. It's the true pocket PC I've always wanted. I have an older model, but it's still fantastic. The GPD line is amazing. I run NVDA on my Win and have used many applications, including Microsoft Edge, Firefox, Chrome, Zoom, TeamTalk, Skype, VLC, Jart, audio games, etc. While the hardware isn't extremely powerful, it's surprisingly capable. I could easily install Microsoft Office, connect a Bluetooth or USB keyboard, and get serious work done. I can't say enough positive things about these devices. While I haven't tried this yet, I don't see why you couldn't install Kurzweil 1000 or KNFB Reader and connect a USB or network scanner to do OCR. I spend 99% of my time using a desktop operating system like Windows because it is significantly more efficient to use a keyboard and multitask. I also have access to so many things that just aren't practical, especially on the ridiculously locked down iOS. I wish my GPD Win had a built-in LTE radio. Yeah, I wouldn't buy any device that doesn't anymore, Christopher. My HP Spectrefolio, which is nowhere near that size, but it has built-in LTE as well. And once you get some sort of Windows device with LTE built in, you would really feel the loss if you went back again. Now you can tell that this one was written by a software developer. You can really tell. <laughs> David Ingebrigtsen says, ha, ha, I enjoy the thought of choosing twixt the phone and computer. I'll tell you some initial thoughts and then some conclusions. See, it's very methodically laid out this email. One, my son will be 14 in a couple of months, so there is no choice for me. I'd have to keep my phone for contact with my phone-centric sighted son. Two, I have to keep my Windows machine because it is the most accessible way for me to develop software that is browser-independent, and that's how I keep the dinner on the table for my son. A, see, I told you it was methodical. A, I'm a professional in the digital technology accessibility sphere, and that relies on Microsoft and Linux to remain employed. B, Microsoft and Linux seem to be working together now, so there doesn't seem to be any reason to move to another platform that is more mobile-centric. C. I haven't found any robust software development tools for the phone-centric OS platforms. 3. I rely on audio production for my work-life balance. I need to create audio productions, music, to try to keep myself centered. A. The audio productions I do require enough detail that the accessibility work from folks like The Snowman and Gary Campbell are required to keep me productive with my audio productions as a blind dude who uses JAWS. I use Audacity and Reaper. Conclusions The number one reason I'd keep my phone over my computer is so that I could keep in touch with my son. Then again, I couldn't keep the dinner on the table for my son if I didn't have a computer to work on so I could keep the dinner on the table for his sustenance. It gets kind of circular. Now, I tell you the computer proponents are out in force this week after the iPhone proponents were very vocal last week because here is Lachlan Thomas continuing this theme. 
And he says, hi, Jonathan, if I was forced to choose between using a computer or a phone, I would choose the computer. First, let me provide some background. I use voiceover when I use my iPhone, but when I use the computer, I use either the Microsoft Windows magnifier or Zoom text. I sometimes use text to speech on my computer to have items read aloud to me. And when I do that, I use a program called Text Help Read and Write. This software is mainly designed for people with learning difficulties, but I've found that it works well for me. The screen on my iPhone is not quite big enough for me to comfortably read text on it. I know the iPhone does have a screen magnifier, but I've not really tried to get my head around its operation and its access. My laptop has a 15-inch screen, and my gaming desktop PC has a 24-inch screen, so I can make text as big as I need. I much prefer to use a keyboard and mouse rather than a touchscreen. Most of the time, I prefer to see print rather than have it read to me, except if I need to read long passages of text, then I find it easier to have it read. I would not want to perform productivity tasks, such as writing documents, on my iPhone. I know that I can use a Bluetooth keyboard with my phone, and I sometimes do. But Bluetooth keyboards have batteries in them. Batteries go flat. USB keyboards and mice don't have this issue. I do use FlickType on my iPhone. It's much like Flexi and works very much in the same way. I love it, but I much prefer to touch type, which I can't do on a touchscreen. Another reason why I prefer the computer is because of software availability on a computer. Software is available from an unlimited number of libraries, repositories, and resources, both commercial and otherwise, whereas on a smartphone device, you're limited to where you can buy software if your operating system provider does not permit you to buy the software you want then it's bad luck i love playing pc games i particularly enjoy playing classic ms dos games from the 90s games that require a joystick keyboard or mouse it's so easy for me to buy and download the games i want either from GOG, Steam, or other online sources. Such games are not really designed to be played on a mobile phone. Yes, they could be migrated to an iPhone, and I believe some have, but nothing compares to playing such games on a physical keyboard or a game controller. On a more serious note, I'm studying at the moment, and I need a laptop in class. We've been advised by our teachers not to do our work on smartphones and tablets, as we visit websites that may not work on a mobile device. It's also very easy to get documents from other people, such as my support worker, by using a USB memory stick, because it's so easy to use memory sticks to transfer data, and I don't need to worry about using cloud storage services. Yes, I do use Dropbox, but getting documents to my computer from others via these online services is something I'm not familiar with. The iPhone is a fantastic content consumption device, but for content creation, it's just not that good, in my opinion. I also think part of my opinion is based on the fact that I'm not a big fan of mobile phone culture, even though I am a part of it. It's sometimes a bit annoying to hear mobile phones making noise all around you, and all you see are people around you with phones in their hands or against their heads all the time. Mind you, I'm probably just as bad.
Few people actually ring me. Oh, and I don't call very many people. And when I do, I often use Facebook Messenger. And because of where I am right now, I can use it on my laptop, and I'm happy with that. Checking in to see how things are going with listeners in the COVID-19 era. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com, 86460-MOSIN to be in touch. Hi, Jonathan. It's Beat here from Avoca in central Victoria. Well, that's a bit of a hotspot at the moment, Victoria, I mean. I was introduced to your awesome show and indeed equally awesome station by one Kirby Harris, who happens to be a very dear friend of mine. Any road, I unfortunately have great difficulty catching you at 4am. But nevertheless, I thought I'd bite the bullet for the first time, break the ice and throw my two cents worth at you anyway. (laughs) How many cliches can you get in one sentence? Anyway, I hope that you're you're able to catch the podcast, which is good. Thank goodness I'm not in Melbourne as stage four lockdown is pretty brutal by all accounts, but stage three still presents its own challenges, especially living in a small country town. Firstly, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but it's not easy being a blinky trapped in an active body at the best of times, being stuck at home for one day is enough to drive me batty, let alone six whole weeks. Second, I'm a musician by trade and have a trio called Basic Black, which focuses on classic pop, folk and soft rock covers, mainly from the 60s to the 90s. We were just finding our feet and gaining popularity when COVID hit and have had to stop halfway through recording our first demo CD as a trio. Worst of all, I have a passion for rocking out the classics And the more this craziness goes on, the more I yearn to get back into a band and rock on. Guess I'm still luckier than some, though. Those challenges are pretty minor, but there they are. Yeah, and they're very real for you. Thanks for the email. And I note that the email actually came through from Dysrhythmia Finn. Now, when I see somebody from Australia sending an email with a name like Dysrhythmia Finn, I am obliged to point out, as long as we just understand that split ends and for that matter, Crowded House, are a New Zealand group, because sometimes Australians like to take the credit, and that gets New Zealanders pretty grumpy. Pretty grumpy. Hi, Jonathan, says Darren McDougall. I thought I'd drop a note in response to your COVID-19 question. I am in Prince Edward Island in Canada. We have been very lucky here, and have had no active cases now for several weeks. Social distancing precautions are in place, but most things have reopened, at least to some extent. I'm very grateful to say that none of my family or friends have gotten sick. Further, my job lends itself to remote work and has not been affected by the virus. There's no question that I'm going a little cuckoo. We won't be in our physical workplaces anytime soon. Friends and family are gathering a little bit, but disappointingly, not as often as I thought we might once restrictions started to ease. I'm very thankful that we've done so well and are continuing to do well, but I'm wondering if anyone else listening is, as the song says, slowly going crazy. Thanks for that, Darren. You raise a very interesting point regarding people not getting together despite there not being too many restrictions left anymore in some parts of the world. I'm finding that people who I know here in New Zealand who have traditionally had very active social lives just aren't getting back into it. 
the six-week lockdown that we had, which was very strict to the point that when we were at level four, you couldn't even get Uber Eats or pizza or anything delivered and all the shops except supermarkets were closed and that kind of thing. Now everything's back to normal. No restrictions at all. No one's wearing masks, going to bars or anything like that. But a lot of people just aren't going. And interestingly, a lot of people are liking the work from home life. So the central business districts of our major cities are all open, back up and running. And the cafe owners are pleading with chambers of commerce and the governments and saying, tell the workers to come back into town. There's no reason why they shouldn't be there, except people like working from home. They like the lifestyle. They do want to come in and have the occasional catch up with colleagues and get that sort of physical contact. But a lot of people are finding themselves much less stressed, much more productive, working from home, and they've sort of lost the social bug for now, at least. Here's Carol Ashland on the email on this subject. And hi, Carol. She says, I am staying in my house and only going out for medical appointments. There have been over a thousand cases of the virus in Oregon and over a hundred deaths. I am in a high risk group. I do not wish to leave my three birds uncared for. I read a great deal and talk to friends on the phone for additional entertainment. I do not have a TV. When all the TV broadcasts went digital, that knocked me out. I do not want to get into watching movies unless they come with audio description. I wish you all the best, Carol. And hopefully you do have access to some audio description if you have a a smartphone or computer that can access Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime and those services. During this time when you are locked down to that extent, you do have a lot of entertainment for you there that is audio described. Hope it all goes well for you. And back to Australia we go to Hobart in Tasmania. John says, hello, Jonathan. The case in Melbourne is terrible. We are quite fortunate in that here in Hobart, Tasmania, we have had zero cases and zero active cases for many weeks. And we have gotten to a semblance of normalcy, even though border restrictions are still in place and university studies are still online. To the UK we go. Hello, Jonathan. This is Paul Hopewell from near Southampton in the UK. I have enjoyed the Mosin at Large podcast for some time and particularly appreciate the excellent tech information therein. One favor you have done me is persuade me to install Ulysses on both my iPhone and Mac, which helps me easily create documents confident that their visual layout will be good. Most days I use my long cane for a three mile or so exercise walk around the streets of my suburban neighborhood. Before GPS, I sometimes used to get lost through lack of attention and had to wait for help from a passerby or head toward traffic noise to hopefully find a recognizable major road. I thus need GPS on my iPhone 8 to tell me which street I am on, what the next intersection is, and sometimes in what compass direction I am heading. I have tried several GPS apps and am very impressed with the latest version of the free app, Nearby Explorer Online. This was updated around the 24th of July, requiring the download of a new map format, enabling Nearby Explorer to give excellent information on the street intersections ahead of me with their distance and whether they are to my left or my right. As I approach an intersection, it gives me a countdown of the remaining distance, 50 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards. It is very customizable 
as I can enable or disable speaking of house numbers, street names, compass bearing, approaching intersection and other nearby points of interest. It offers turn-by-turn guidance to a desired location and you can save and name your current location such as a park entrance and later find it using compass bearing and distance across an open space. If you do not need points of interest, you can use it with mobile data turned off. I have set the radius for points of interest to 50 yards so that I am not told about places some distance away. The documentation is excellent. There is a lot I have not yet tried, but so far it matches my needs very well and I recommend it. That's a very glowing endorsement. Thanks so much for sending that in, Paul. And let's find out what other people think, not only of Nearby Explorer, but the state of GPS apps today. What are people using when they are able to get out and about these days to get out and about? Let me know about your favorite GPS apps and what their pros and cons are for you on any platform. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com is my email address. The phone number 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. 864-606-6736. Hi, here's Tim in Veld. I travel everywhere by public transport and walking in the Netherlands and some other countries. And I don't need any taxi Maybe I sometimes use a taxi for convenience and speed, but never because I couldn't get there without it. And the only assistance that I really need is airport assistance, but that's more because of the way airports are set up. I enjoy long walks, walking routes of three, four, five kilometers. That's just daily routine. 10 or 15 I do quite often. And even once I did a 25 kilometer route all by myself, which I managed, except that it became a 35 kilometer route because of navigation errors. And in what I'm about to say, don't think it's as easy as it sounds. There is a lot of trial and error, which is a big part of my overall strategy. The fact that I have a little bit of sight particularly helps with mobility. But I also know totally blind people who do similar things to what I do, although usually they have guide dogs. For independent travel, you need skills and technology. I think you need three main skills. First, you need to be a confident walker. It relates to your blindness skills. Are you able to orient yourself? Maybe you do that by echolocation or cane use, or there are many ways to do that. And you need to be steady on your feet. You shouldn't fall over the first little hurdle that you trip over. You've got to be in reasonable physical shape and you should be trained to confidently walk on some rough paths. The second skill you need, well, you need to be a bit like a pilot, yes? You need to be always calm, never panic, and you need great troubleshooting skills. If you get lost, you should just calmly analyze the situation. Okay, I did this, that went wrong, and this is how I can resolve the problem. And the third skill you need is you need to be very responsible. And the 25-kilometer route I once walked, at some point I was standing in front of a highway, which you have to have enough sense not to cross. Well, of course, that's an extreme example. But you do need to analyze the situation and understand what's safe and what's maybe not so safe. So you really need to be a bit like a pilot. Skill two, you need to troubleshoot and be daring and be bold. But skill three, you also need to know what you can or cannot do. And that's a bit of a difficult balance to strike sometimes. Other than those skills, you will need technology. And what technology I use? Well, I use far too many absent devices. Literally, I count my hearing aids, but sometimes I use six devices and six apps to get somewhere. 
there's a great lack of integration. Well, the main apps that I use, of course, there are public transport planning apps. There's also navigation apps. Google Maps these days is particularly good, but another invaluable tool for me is BlindSquare. And the main use of BlindSquare for me is that I find a destination and then I can track it and I get a direction and a distance. So it tells me that Mosin Towers is at 520 meters at three o'clock. And then if I walk a bit further and I find a road uh, on my right side, I know, hey, it's at three o'clock, so probably I need to turn right here. And that's a very useful tool because Google Maps isn't perfect and it's important to know where I am relative to my destination. Another very important use of BlindSquare is to explore my surroundings. So if I'm going to a hotel, I will program the hotel, simulate the destination, and then I can check out if there are any fun bars near the hotel. Because BlindSquare is very good at knowing all the locations which are near a certain destination. The only unfortunate thing is that BlindSquare is sometimes a bit out of date, so it might list a pub which is no longer there. Finally, I've got my Victor Reader Track, which is also a GPS navigation device. And the main reason I still use it is that it has physical buttons and it's a bit easier to operate than my iPhone while I'm walking. I could ramble on about other apps and technology. My business is named Blind Mobility, what's in a name, but given the time, I won't. Jonathan, last week in my contribution, I suggested what we could summarize as we take away thy smartphone and thou shalt not walk free no more. Ooh, that's pretty scary. And to a degree, this really expresses the fear that I would have. If I didn't have the ability to walk routes and travel independently, it would fundamentally change my relationship to other people, because if I were to go out with someone, I would know that I could never get back home except by relying on that person's help. So, suppose we got into an argument, I couldn't get back home by myself. Well, of course, this is a situation you hope you don't encounter, but on a philosophical level, the knowledge that you totally depend on someone, physically depend on someone, is going to fundamentally change your relationship with a person, whether you like it or not. Maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Finally, Jonathan... You said that you knew some blind people who were very independent back in the 1930s. I know that there are some people with great mobility skills. I've met Dan Kish and I saw him walking. The way he employs echolocation is amazing. And I'm sure there were people like that in the 1930s who could find every place in their hometown. But suppose you dropped them in an unfamiliar town they didn't have access to paper maps or public transportation schedules, so all they could do was ask for help to be guided every step of the way, I guess, until they had learned the new town. Or do you think there would be blind people who can walk an unfamiliar route independently without the use of navigation technology? I can understand how you do it with a tactile map or maybe minimal help from bystanders, but I'd be interested in hearing those stories. Oh, yeah, Tim. I have seen some really impressive travelers in recent times who can just get around anywhere. In fact, if you go through the body of literature, 
that the National Federation of the Blind has in the United States, you'll see some really interesting stuff there about how they have people, quite a number of people there, who believe that actually it is more efficient to use techniques that I believe they call structured discovery to get around an airport than it is to use meet and assist. And I think many of us have had these disempowering meet and assist experiences at airports, particularly, I have to say, in the United States. I've been in situations in the United States where I've been sort of put in a special room (laughs) and told, you must not go anywhere until we come back for you kind of thing. It's like being a prisoner. It's actually quite scary, and it is certainly very disempowering as an adult to be treated that way. And so there are a lot of NFB members who don't go for that meet and assist stuff and hoon around airports using structured discovery, asking people, that sort of thing. So there may well be some people who have been to NFB learning centers, listening to the show, who might like to talk about the techniques that blind people have developed for ourselves over in the United States for structured discovery, which essentially means that even if you don't know the route, you don't know your location, there are ways to get the information that you need. And I think there would be some people who would argue that sometimes the technology is a bit of a distraction. Now, I'm not one. I don't claim to be at all a good traveler, especially with my hearing having deteriorated over time. I find it's more of a challenge But certainly, if you are just blind without any additional impairments, there are some pretty cool things going on in the US, and they are technology exempt. They're not dependent on technology. I have to say that the best travel experiences I have had with the aid of technology are most definitely with Ira. And the golden age for me was Ira with the Austria glasses, the generation before Horizon. Horizon was really clunky. You had that cable that you had to connect to this separate phone that you had to carry with you. I know that a lot of people who used Austria in the United States would carry this AT&T hotspot with them to use the AT&T data that Ira so generously provided at the time. But I would just pair the Austria glasses with the data on my phone and wander around, and it was a great experience. No cable, just the Austria glasses getting a signal from the Wi-Fi hotspot on my phone, and I was rocking with that thing. Admittedly, the field of view was narrower than Horizon, but it worked a lot more reliably and with a lot less hassle. And I loved that because you could transition seamlessly from indoors to outdoors. You could go into busy, crowded environments and navigate around. In fact, my very first IRA experience was actually just with the smartphone camera getting around the very busy hotel at the CSUN conference. And I have not investigated alternatives to the glasses now that IRA doesn't provide those anymore. I know there are lanyards and all sorts of options. And perhaps as we have these discussions today about traveling, IRA users can tell me about what they are using now and substitute for the glasses now that the glasses have been taken away. But that for me was certainly a golden age. I mean, Bonnie and I would wander around markets, really busy farmers markets and have an agent telling us what wares were on the table, you know, what people were selling and that kind of thing. And that was just 
phenomenal. That was liberating, all with Ira and the Austria glasses. So for me, what that tells me is a little bit of human assistance in your ears as you travel. That's pretty sweet. Mosin at Large Podcast. This is Audible. Well, people aren't happy with Audible, apparently, especially if they use Audible on the computer. I must say I'm surprised to learn that there are still blind people doing Audible on the computer because when I got my nice leather modern HP Spectre Folio laptop, I kind of went through a phase where I thought, oh, I'll try using this more as a consumption device, a content consumption device. So I got the Audible app from the microsoft store and it was a real piece of soup dude it was just terrible and it made me realize why i just don't do a lot of content consumption on my computer anymore but anyway apparently this is still a thing because henry miller has written to me and he says we are writing to seek your help by drawing to your attention the changes which audible have made to their downloads manager and the inaccessibility of their new Audible Sync app. At the end of last week, Audible decided, in their wisdom, to withdraw the option to download books to computers on their audible.co.uk website, and, I believe, also the audible.com site. Audible have created a new app called Audible Sync, which is supposed to be more screen-reader-friendly and is only for downloading and transferring books to active players. Okay, so I guess this is where things like the stream would come in uh, for people using that. So yeah, I, I, I can see this as an issue. We belong, says Henry, to a mailing list called Blind Audible Listeners, based in the United States. There have been a deluge, deluge of complaints this past week regarding not being able to log into the app, including ourselves with cited help. The confusion is caused by the capture process and identifying which edit field to complete or ignore. Perhaps if you have the time, you could take a look rather than me sending you screenshots and lengthy explanatory notes. We wonder if you would consider inviting Audible onto your program to discuss the whole issue of accessibility, as when I ring up to ask for help on this app, I am hearing different solutions from their representatives, and none so far have been successful, as you will see from the comments on the Blind Audible listeners mailing list. Thanks, Henry. So I don't know whether there's any device I have that I could even try this with, but I would like to hear from others. Audible is a very popular service in the blind community, understandably so. And over the years, Audible has really twigged to that. And certainly with things like their iOS app, at least, they really have made an effort to improve accessibility steadily over time. So one would like to hope this is some sort of temporary glitch. Maybe they're trying something new, that they're hearing about the kinks, and they will respond accordingly. I'd be very happy to reach out to somebody from Audible, but I would like some more information. Do you know about this Audible Sync app that Henry speaks of? Have you tried it? What are the issues? And is it really affecting the way that you use Audible? 
please let me know. And if necessary, we'll see if we can ask somebody from Audible to have a chat with us on the show. But I'd like to get some more info. We have quite a newsy email here from Pete Tarode, who says, Hi, Jonathan. Thanks as ever for a great show. The little rock known as Guernsey is still free from the virus, and we are free to go about our business with no social distancing. I often listen to podcasts from the rest of the world and feel very lucky to live here. Our borders are closed, so if you leave and return, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. This is being reduced to seven with a test on day seven from mid-August. Our sister island of Jersey has opened its borders and has eight cases, but has just reported a community transmitted case, so I do worry for them. There are worse places to be stuck than a rock surrounded by sea and smaller surrounding islands to visit. I should be paid by Visit Guernsey, he says. Indeed you should. You're a fine ambassador, a fine ambassador. And every time I think of Guernsey, I think of Lillian Bellamy, who lived on Guernsey for a while. But if you're not a fan of the Archers, and why not, then you wouldn't know who Lillian Bellamy is. Anyway, this email continues with regard to navigation apps. I like Soundscape. See, Soundscape isn't available in New Zealand, which really just perplexes me. I don't know why Microsoft haven't released it here. Uh, He says, it is my preferred app for walking around, but I also use it on the bus as some drivers don't use the stop announcements. I like the ability to place markers, which are fairly accurate, I also like Lazarillo, especially on the bus, as it seems to call out more road junctions and pretty quickly as well, so you don't miss your stop. I have tried Nearby Explorer Online, but not extensively yet. I also tried the Sunu Band, but sadly it keeps failing. The concept is good because the feedback is not on your cane hand, but the reliability for me has been extremely poor. Lastly, Computer versus phone. Computer for getting anything done, but because I can do 90% if not more of it on my phone with a keyboard, I have to join the phone crowd, I am afraid. I have already conceded that when my iPad Pro goes out of support, it's laptop or iPad, not both. And because I use Windows at work, the laptop will probably win that one. I like a larger format machine so I can have a numeric keypad, but wondered if using an external touchscreen wireless display might get back some of the tablet feel. It will be a while before I need to make that decision, I hope. In the meantime, there is Duet, so I can use my iPad as a second screen with a duplicate of the laptop display. It's a while since I used it, but I recall you can drive narrator with the touch screen. I must dig it out and give it another go. Well, the best to you, Pete, and uh, long may the COVID-free thing go on for you in Guernsey. I'm interested in this whole number pad thing. I do hear a few blind people saying they won't have a laptop without a number pad, and I honestly wonder why. Why would you do that? Because obviously the number pad takes up space and drawers, certainly, has a really easy, compelling laptop layout. In fact, it's so easy and compelling that even when I'm sitting here with my mechanical keyboard in my studio on the super-duper desktop, hope I'm not jinxing the thing, I use laptop layout even on a desktop machine. And I do that because 
my hands don't need to leave the home row. I've got the caps lock key as my JAWS key, and I can use UINO to uh, check out the lines and JKNL for the words. And all those JAWS commands are available to you without having to take your fingers off the main part of the keyboard and use the number pad. So I do wonder what the attraction is and would be very interested in people's views about this. And of course, if you can wean yourself off your number pad, it opens up a lot of possibilities for touch then. There are quite a few convertible type laptops out there. My HP Spectre Folio that I'm driving at the moment is very similar to the Lenovo Yoga and various other models like this. It has a keyboard and the screen is a touchscreen when it's in its sort of laptop position, but it folds over nicely and just becomes a tablet. And then you can use all your screen readers touch gestures to navigate around rather like an iPad. But you wouldn't, I don't think, get a device like that with a number pad. So another good reason to get familiar with the laptop layout on your assistive technology. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. There's been a bit of disgruntlement expressed in recent days about an action that Apple has taken. And I'm not clear how many people who are expressing this disgruntlement are disgruntled because they got pinged by it or they're just disgruntled because of the principle of the thing. So first of all, let me do a mea culpa and tell you my story. I've been beta testing Apple products for many years now. I originally got into this before Apple offered a public beta program, and I thought by taking a few risks and getting the builds early with the bit of knowledge that I have of this sort of stuff and designing user interfaces and that kind of thing, I might be able to be a constructive part of the solution of making these wonderful products that so many of us are increasingly relying upon for more and more tasks to be more stable and just run better. And then, of course, I got into writing the iOS without the iSeries. So having access to the builds helped me to put the book together, which hopefully helped you make the most of the new software when it came out. Well, when I stopped running Mosin Consulting, I decided to keep my developer account active. It was fun to get the builds. And I have at various times had a test iPhone device. It's actually quite hard to maintain a test iPhone device in my house because I've got lots of people hovering around for the devices when I'm not using them. But I have done that. I have not had a test Apple Watch device partly because it's kind of weird walking around with two watches, (laughs) and partly because I figured if the watch had some sort of little glitch, it wouldn't really be the end of the world. You know, if I had a bit of extra battery drain or something didn't work quite right, you know, that'd be fine. And so it is that I realize Apple's in a bit of a pattern with this cycle. So every couple of weeks, pretty much like clockwork at the moment, They are coming out with new beaters. So on Wednesday morning, my time, Tuesday in the US, they normally drop at about 5 a.m. New Zealand time. And I woke up a little after that and I saw that iOS 14 beta 4 was there. I quickly updated to that. For some reason, I wasn't seeing the watch update right away. So I came back to that later in the day and was really busy doing other things. So I thought I'd just put the watch on its charger. I'm not going to use my phone for a bit. I'll let them talk to each other and do the update. When that update completed, so the watch was now running watchOS 7 beta 4, 
I heard the little noise that the Apple Watch makes when it's charging. So I figured, all right, everything's updated now. But voiceover didn't talk. And I thought, that's a bit curious. I left it a bit longer. And then I pressed the digital crown to make sure it was awake. Then I pressed it three times quickly to toggle voiceover off. Got no speech at all. I pressed it three times again. And voiceover made its little kind of weird sound that it makes on watchOS to indicate that it was about to say voiceover on. Trouble is, it never did. So I tried troubleshooting it as best I could. I performed the reset that you can perform by holding down the digital crown and the side button for 10 seconds. So it did a reboot. I heard the same thing, the charging sound, voiceover, not talking at all. I looked in the watch app, tried toggling voiceover on and off from there. So, I mean, I'm pretty adept at solving most Apple problems that are user solvable. Now, luckily, because of all the argy-bargy that's been going on at Mosin's house this week, building this brand new wonder PC, I did actually have some sighted assistance to hand. So I asked Heidi, what's going on with my Apple Watch? And she looked at it and she said, it says you have to wait another 13 minutes before you can try entering your password again. So I had diagnosed wrongly that voiceover was on by that little noise it was making, but it was something to do with the TTS. So I was trying to invoke rotor gestures because the wonderful thing about watchOS 7 is that you will be able to select different TTS engines and not have to change your region, which I have to do. I have to set my watch, in previous versions anyway, to the UK so I can get the Daniel voice, which is the easiest one for me as a hearing impaired person to hear. So it's all good. So I was trying to do rotor gestures at random to see if I could get the TTS back. And what I was doing apparently was repeatedly entering incorrect passwords. So since Heidi was there, I said, let's have a go at resetting the watch. And so I unpaired the watch and then the thing rebooted. That took a while. And normally what happens then, of course, when the watch comes up is you can do a triple click of the crown and you will get usually Samantha, I believe, coming up and telling you that voiceover's on, and giving you some guidance through the process. Well, when that didn't come up, I knew I was really in soup street, because I knew that we were dealing with a fundamental problem in the beta. So then what I did was I got on the jolly old Twitter, and I saw that not only were other people having the problem, but actually Apple told us that we would have the problem. So I need, first of all, to absolutely do a mere culpa, and take some responsibility for this. And I think it is important that all of us feeling the sting of this particular one do before I go on to my next point. So it's beta software. And when you have beta software, you are, of course, going to have bugs. Some of them could be quite severe. So I've had people contact this podcast complaining about particular bugs in the beta cycle. And I haven't run a lot of those messages because I think that's fundamentally unfair. You know what you're signing up for. You're signing up for bugs and toil and trouble. And hopefully we can have some input so that when those who perhaps aren't so adept with technology get their hands on this stuff in September, they'll have a better experience because we did our bit. And hopefully, of course, Apple will have listened. So I did not read the release notes 
I guess I have gotten into the habit of not immediately reading the release notes because I read a lot of tech news. As you will know if you listen to this show regularly, I read a lot of RSS feeds. That's my primary source of news. And whenever Apple drops a new beta, I normally find out there what's going on, what's new, what perhaps is potentially defective that I need to know about. So I've gotten out of the habit of reading the release notes, and I am to blame for that. I'm fully responsible. And I think that I have been derelict in my obligations as a beta tester for not doing that. So I hope that's sufficient self-flagellation, because I deserve it, right? I do still pose this question. Is it morally right for Apple to knowingly release a version of any operating system that breaks voiceover? And this is where I have a real problem. I think there's been one iOS beta in the past where voiceover was really bad. I think to the point of being potentially dysfunctional in certain circumstances. But to the best of my knowledge, there was nothing in the release notes because it was inadvertent. And again, that's what you sign up for. I guess I would be far less concerned if I had updated my watch OS and found that this was an inadvertent bug and that Apple will get to it as soon as they can. I can live with that. What I find very disappointing is that they would knowingly put something in a release note that says watchOS is not working with voiceover. If you rely on voiceover to use watchOS, then don't update. Now, we have had discussions on this podcast over the weeks where we've talked about quality assurance issues at Apple. And I think we've all agreed that Apple has done a phenomenal job. They have just blown my expectations out of the water when it comes to adding features to iOS. Every year, there's something crunchy and cool that they add to iOS for voiceover users. It's been an amazing run. But there are quality control issues with some of these new features and breaking existing ones as they make changes in the process, such as the complex nature of software. And to avoid these discussions getting into just ranting and whinging, I came up with a concept when I was doing a lot of blogging on these issues a few years ago called equivalency. And I mentioned equivalency, and I note with some satisfaction that this concept that I've come up with is grabbing the attention of some blindness agencies. So I'm obviously gratified that this concept is gaining some traction. So the idea here is if you extrapolated the problem that we are having to the mainstream, what would be the equivalent? And if you conclude that mainstream users would not stand for something, then it is just downright offensive to expect any disabled person to stand for the equivalent thing. So let's apply that principle to this issue and see what we get. VoiceOver replaces the output on our screen. So what do you think would happen if they put something in the release notes that said, if you rely on the touchscreen to see your watch, then don't update to this beta because the only people who can use it are VoiceOver users. Do you think people would be really annoyed about that? Of course they would. And it would have got some tech press. Whereas this voiceover issue, to the best of my knowledge, got no tech press at all. What does it really say 
about the status of blind people at Apple when they can knowingly do this. And I know that beta cycles are tight. I don't have any internal knowledge of the way that Apple's processes work, but if they're on a cycle, I suspect there comes a point where you seal off the code and compile and get ready to publish, and that might take some time. But you would have to think there must be some showstoppers. As I say, if the screen was not rendering text or images, that presumably would cause people to say, hold the presses, we've got to fix this, we can't release this because it will break everybody's devices. So it seems to be the message that it's okay to willfully break blind people's devices. They've knowingly released this, knowing that if anyone happens to install it and is stupid enough like me to not read the release notes, they will break your device. And what it means is that at a point where you would like to hope that if there were some significant bugs, they have an opportunity to be resolved before the Golden Master ships. Blind people have lost two critical weeks to give feedback. So even if you did read the release notes, you're still using your watch, okay, you haven't updated, you still can't test the latest build to make sure that it's coming along okay, You can't fulfill your obligations as a beta tester. This has impacted me in two major ways. The most important one is that because of my hearing impairments, I wear my Apple Watch at night when I'm sleeping. And of course, an increasing number of people are. I think Apple would like us to wear it while we're sleeping anyway, because we're beta testing the sleep tracking functionality at the moment. But I wear it because if I wake in the night, sort of dozing, and I want to check the time, I can't push the button on my iPhone and hear the time. If I wanted to hear the time on my iPhone, I have to put hearing aids in. And by the time I've done that, I'm probably awake. So the Apple Watch is great because I can do the tactic time thing and just know what the time is and think, oh man, I'm going to try and get back to sleep. And of course, there is the alarm functionality that gives you haptic feedback on your wrist when it's time to wake up. The other one is, that I had a move streak that I think was getting really close to 800-ish days, and that's a first-world problem. <laughs> but the first one is a bit of an issue. Now, I know the apologists, perhaps with some justification, are going to say, well, maybe you shouldn't be beta testing. Maybe you need a dedicated watch. Apart from the cost of a second Apple Watch, is it really reasonable For those who genuinely want to make a contribution, because remember, as somebody who isn't an Apple developer, I'm actually paying so that I can give Apple my feedback, which is kind of an interesting scenario. So I'm I'm paying whatever it is, a hundred and something dollars a year so that I can hopefully have some constructive input and make a difference, you know, be the change I want to see in the world and all those good things. Should I also have to purchase a second Apple Watch on the off chance that one day Apple will choose to knowingly release a build that breaks the device completely just for blind people. What do you think? Jonathan at mushroomfm.com and the listener line number 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736. From Austin, Texas, Kathy Blackburn is writing in on this and says, it seems to me that if a beta broke some other significant feature of an operating system that made that OS unusable by sighted people, 
the company would not have released it until the problem was fixed. While I give Apple credit for warning voiceover users not to use this beta, I don't think it should have been released with voiceover functionality broken. To the UK we go, Brian Gav says, I don't have an Apple Watch, but in my view, if a tech company wants to put out bleeding-edge code that breaks stuff, then it's an alpha, not a beta. I can understand they may need to find out if the bug they are trying to find is in a particular piece of code, but that sort of test build has no place in a beta program. For example, NVDA have an alpha and a beta channel for this very reason. Sounds like laziness to me. It's not going to help their street cred. And in the interest of trying to be as balanced about this as possible and and offer all perspectives, I should say this is a developer build. It is not a public beta build. But I would also balance that by saying there isn't a public beta build of Apple Watch at this point of watchOS. I understand one may be coming. So in the absence of any public beta build for now, and there never has been one, the only way you can test Apple Watch or watchOS is to sign up as a developer. So you have no choice. Hello, Jonathan and all. This is Larry from Louisville again. I wanted to comment on the facial vision versus echolocation commentary uh, you all have been discussing. I had read somewhere uh, some research or heard that facial vision is strongly related to your ability to hear. In other words, it's sound. And I think I can pretty much prove this by the following little experiment. Put some headphones on, especially some noise-canceling ones, and you'll see that you have absolutely no facial vision. In fact, you have very little orientation. I also wanted to comment uh, about people saying that the mask affects their facial vision, and I totally agree with that. In fact, I've noticed um, I wear these Aftershocks uh, Trex Air headphones all the time for interaction with my iPhone while I'm walking around or whatever. And even putting those on makes a, a bit of a difference. Also noticed last summer I started wearing a hat with a brim on it, and that affected my perception of the sounds more profoundly than I would have thought. And then finally on this topic, I'm sure some of you have noticed, but this uh, ability to be able to hear poles and, and things in the environment as you walk by them seems to be greatly enhanced at night. And I don't know if it's related to this or not, but if you've ever ridden a horse at night, you you see that they have much more energy. They're more alive. I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not, but um, those are just some observations. I had to chime in about funny dog stories. I've been a guide dog user since um, the early 80s. I'm on number six right now, and I walk a lot with them. Anyway, I I think a really funny story. I think it was with my current dog, in fact. This has been probably five years ago or so, maybe a little longer than that. I'm walking to work one day, and I walk along a fairly busy road pretty early in the morning, around 7 o'clock. And this was the day before school was supposed to 
resume uh, in the fall of that year. And the reason I say that is that, you know, there was not much traffic out. It was kind of quiet. And I'm testing an app that we're developing called Nearby Explorer. It's long since been released, but what I would do back in those days, this was an Android phone, and I would just put it in my shirt pocket, and the speakers were pointing up. I didn't. I don't think I had the uh, Trex Air back at that time, but I'm walking along and gauging how it's announcing the streets that are coming up and the accuracy and everything, and I come up to this one street where there's a daycare on the corner, and I start to cross, and I, I can hear that there's a lady pulled into the street, or I didn't know it was a lady at the time, but there was a car pulled in there and, and uh, shuts the car off, and the kid gets out of the right side of the car, and I can hear another little kid in the, in, in the back, you know, pushing the seat up, and uh, my, my synthesizer in the phone says, Galt Avenue for the street I was crossing, and the kid that's jumping out of the back uh as his mom is opening the door he he must have heard it or obviously heard it because he goes mama what was that and about that time i'm getting you know out of the street onto the sidewalk and and the uh, phone announces a uh, crescent hill daycare center 20 feet ahead and the mom just looks over without missing a beat and says oh it's that dog I laughed all the way to work. To Australia we go. Graham Innes is on the email. He says, hi, Jonathan. I just heard you and Bonnie talking about Skylab. It landed quite a way north and east of Perth near a little town called Balladonia. I am married to a wonderful West Australian and her father found and kept a piece of Skylab. So I have actually touched it. I remember that it felt like a piece of hard plastic but it had quite a fuzzy or furry outside, I guess from the heat melting the outside during re-entry. It is now in the Geraldton Museum, where Maureen's dad Tom is buried, but it is still a strong memory for me. Wow, that really is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that memory, Graham. I presume that they didn't give warnings to people not to touch the debris or the, the bits of Skylab. I remember when Columbia so tragically came down in when was that 2003 and they were telling people don't touch it because it could be toxic and things like that but i guess it was a different situation when skylab came down it is fascinating when you go to things like the smithsonian museum for example and you can touch bits of spacecraft you know the apollo capsule and things like that i love that kind of stuff Sporting a very attractive pair of high-quality studio headphones today, it is the one and only Bonnie Mason. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm good. I just had two winners on the card at Saratoga, so very happy. How does that even work? Um, watching, waiting for the Run Happy Traverse Stakes later today, where we'll see the Belmont winner. But you don't like gamble on the horses, do nah, you? I wish no, I, I kind of wish I was, because I'm doing pretty well right now. So probably if I really were putting money on them, I wouldn't be winning. So the reason why you are sporting this phenomenal pair of high-quality studio headphones is that we need to let you hear the soup drinker. Yeah. Because we are going to demonstrate... 
version 2.0 of the blind technology trivia skill. Now, I wrote this to keep myself busy when you were away at the CNR. Yep. In when was that? 2019, the beginning of 2019. Yeah, February 2019. Yeah. And it gave me something to do, and I put this together. Unfortunately, this is only available in the U.S. store. So if you're listening from somewhere outside the U.S., I'm very sorry. The blueprints thing that I used to write this skill means that I can't publish it in any other store. Which is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. It is unfortunate. But it's a fun game, and lots of people have told me that they enjoy playing it, or at least they did when I first released it. And then I forgot about it. And then my friend Terry called me the other day or sent a message actually on the WhatsApp and reminded me of it. I'd completely forgotten about the blind technology (laughs) trivia. And I thought, oh, man, I should go back to this and add some more questions. So I have added a lot more questions and done a few things to it. And version 2.0 of the blind technology trivia is in the store. Soup drinker. Open Blind Technology Trivia. Welcome to Blind Technology Trivia, version 2.0, by Jonathan Mosen, the game where we explore 35 years of tech trivia from the blindness world. 35 years? I'll be asking you some questions Mm. about the products and people in the blindness technology industry. Some are super easy, others will break your brain. Oh dear. If you like Mm -hmm. this game... Then please check out the Mosin at Large podcast for plenty of interactive blindness technology discussion. Well, that's a good idea. You can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. One to four players can play. How many are playing? Two. Two. Is this rubber ducky and stormy? Yes. Yes. Wait for the beep, man. I'm sorry. Let's start. Remember to answer quickly. I'm rubber ducky. First to five points. Stormy. To undo an answer, say undo. This first question is for Rubber Ducky. Well, that's me. When did voiceover first come to the iPhone? Is the answer 1. 2008 2. 2009 3. 2010 or 4. 2007 2. How do you do that? You now have one point. The first iPhone to offer voiceover was the iPhone 3GS. Yep. Stormy's turn. What's the name of the popular note-taker line produced by Hymns of South Korea? Is the answer 1. Braille Note 2. Braille Sense 3. Pocket Braille or 4. Versa Braille 2. Yay! <laughs> That's correct. You now have one point. Oh dear. Rubber Ducky's <laughs> turn. Mine, what mine. is the name of Google's screen reader for Android? Is the answer 1. Voice over. 2. Speak text. 3. Talk back. Or 4. Android talk. 3. Mate. Look at you go. Mm. You now have two points. Stormy's turn. I have an app. It lets me take a picture of something, and after a short while, a mix of object recognition and crowdsourcing comes back describing what I've just photographed. What's the name of this app? 
is the answer. 1. Voice Dream Reader. 2. Digitize. 3. Tap Tap C. Or 4. KNFB Reader. 3. Whee! Dude. Dude. That's it. You now have two points. Dude. Rubber Ducky's <laughs> turn. Designed originally for Pocket PC, this print reading app made its way to Nokia Symbian phones and is now available for iOS, Android, and Windows 10. What's the name of the app? Is the answer 1. KNFB Reader. 2. Tap Tap C. 3. Seeing AI. Or 4. Sendero. 1. <laughs> Holy soup! Your memory is phenomenal. Phenomenal, I tell you. You now have three points. We've come a long way, baby. Yep. Stormy's turn. Amazon has a screen reader which can be found on some of its products including Kindle Fire and Fire Stick. What's the name of the screen reader? Is the answer 1. Voice over 2. Talk back 3. Amazon Reader or 4. Voice View 3. You said 3. Amazon Reader. Oh lordy mercy. The correct answer was Ooh. Voice View. Wow. Rubber Ducky's turn. Marty mm -hmm. Schultz is a software developer with a massive number of apps in the iOS app store designed for blind people. What is the name of his company? Is the answer 1. Voice Dream 2. Blindfold Games 3. KNFB or 4. Microsoft 2. Holy jumping jellyfish. You now have four points. Ooh, first to five, Whether by the Whether you way. want to yeah. play board games, dice games, or even do some bowling, Marty's developed something for you. Stormy's turn. Long before smartphones and the PDA were being used by sighted people, many blind people carried around a Braille and speak. Who developed this handy-dandy little product? Is the answer. 1. Hunter Joyce. 2. Telesensory. 3. Blazy Engineering. Or 4. Humanware. 4. Oh, I'm sorry, 3. Oh, God. You said it's, 4. No, it's Blazy Engineering. Oops. Oh, that went down goodness. like a cup of hot soup. The correct answer was Blazy Engineering. Oh, I got my numbers Dean mixed Blazy up. Blazy took the world by storm with his little pocket powerhouse. How embarrassing is that? Yeah. Rubber Ducky's turn. What's the name of the optical character recognition software developed originally by Arkenstone and which became a Freedom Scientific product in 2000? Is the answer 1. Kurzweil 1000 2. Reading Edge 3. Dolphin or 4. Open Book 4. Wow. Incredible. Totally, like, incredible. You now have five points. So you win. Stormy's turn. The JAWS screen reader was created by Henter Joyce. What was Henter's first name? Is the answer 1. Dave. 2. 
Ted. 3. Doug. Or 4. Bill. 2. 2. Holy jumping jellyfish. You now have 3 points. Ted Henter was blinded as the result of a car accident. He decided computers were the future and eventually started his own company with his business partner. Ooh. The results are In the second place is Stormy with a score of 3 points. And the winning players is Rubber Ducky with a score of 5 points. Congratulations, you are awesome. <laughs> Want to play again? No. No. No, I don't think so, mate. No, no. Uh, Thank you that for was playing. Fun, except for my stupid mistake. Yes, well, yeah. You didn't get the voice for you when. Well, yeah. that one I can understand because I don't think I've ever used it. I don't have a Kindle Fire. We've got a Kindle Fire. We but do, but I've never, I've yeah, never used yeah. it. I usually just use Kindle with uh, voiceover. Yeah. So that one was a legitimate I didn't know. The yes. other one I did know, but just screwed up the numbers. Got the numbers wrong. If you're quick enough, you can say undo, but you have to be really quick. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to play that <laughs> and you have access to the U.S. store, you can play Blind Technology Trivia. Just enable Blind Technology Trivia on your drinker device. Gary O'Donoghue was checking in from Washington, D.C., who says just caught up with this week's show. You may know these already, but if not, do have a listen to David Pluff's Campaign HQ. Mm. I'll give it a go on your recommendation, Gary, but you see, he went way down in my estimation when he crossed the pond to help out the Tories. I don't how 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 could he do that? Anyway, I, it just seemed to be for sale to the highest bidder to me after that. Anyway, Gary continues. He was one of Obama's key people, like Axelrod, but his podcasts are getting really big guests from the campaigns on to talk, so you were really getting stuff from the horse's mouth. Yes, it's interesting that when David Axelrod started his podcast, he had some very big guests. Mitt Romney was one of his first, and there were a lot of really key people I don't know. It seems like he's scrounging around for guests a little bit now. Gary continues. Also, if you haven't already tried it, the 538 podcast from Nate Silver and his crew is proper hardcore American politics. Yes, I read a lot of his stuff, but I haven't checked out the podcast. So hopefully the production values are good in there because he does know his stuff. I love the way he crunches the numbers. Gary goes on, I'm going to give that podcast engineering show a listen. Sounds great. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Interested to hear you dived into the Focusrite world. I have a Focusrite solo third generation, just one input, very clean preamps, great build quality, and can be powered from a USB power bank. So I often use it to do radio inserts on my iPhone. You need the expensive Apple camera adapter, of course, but it works really well as an on-the-road mobile rig for doing live work. And finally, how great to hear Larry's voice again takes me back to those blind, cool tech days. Are they still developing Studio Recorder? I still use that occasionally for a very quick, dirty bit of editing when I don't start a project, etc. That is a very good question, Gary, and hopefully I will be in a position to answer it in the forthcoming weeks. Studio Recorder is certainly a great app. Thanks for all the tips, as always, Gary. I'll check out those podcasts.
Oh, and yes, while the lack of accessibility of the Focusrite control panel is frustrating, it is just such a nice unit, such crisp, clean audio. So I'm going to stick with it. Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Upton. There was one question that was not asked by a listener on Mosin at Large episode 53, the special edition on All About Podcasting. And the question is, are there some apps accessible on a Windows computer that can support creating markers as podcast chapters? Like in the case of someone's listening on a podcast app that supports podcast chapters, and if that person is interested or not interested in a specific chapter, or if that person would like to go to the previous chapter or the next chapter directly. Thanks, Thomas. Tools for this have been a bit sparse in Windows. There are quite a few Mac options available. What I've been doing is exporting my bookmarks as a CSV file, and then importing into Orphonic, which is a really important part of the production process for Mosin at large. However, there is now a way to do it directly in Reaper. There's a syntax that you can use. You can find information on this. So you can create podcast chapters directly in Reaper if you like to apply post-production plugins in Reaper, such as dynamic audio compression and setting levels to certain LUF values and that kind of thing. You can now do the complete process in Reaper and end up with podcast chapters at the end. Over to Australia we go. Andrew Downey says, Hi Jonathan, your comments about Audacity in a recent podcast produced some concerned discussion on the Audacity for Blind list. You included Audacity in single track workstations. While Audacity is a single track recorder, it has multi-track playback capability. You could, for example, record six channels of audio on your Zoom F6 and import each file into Audacity on its own track. Just like any other multi-track DAW digital audio workstation, each track can be tweaked independently of others. For us mere mortals who do not own multi-track recording equipment, the single-track recording capabilities of Audacity puts us at no disadvantage compared to using Reaper, Cubase, etc. I have often recorded into a stereo track. An example that comes up from time to time on the Reaper list is having one's voice on one track and screen reader output on the other. Having panned inputs appropriately, it is a simple task to split the track into two mono tracks. Indeed, considerably faster than with Reaper. And you have no doubt noticed the discussion on the Reaper list about auto-ducking. In Reaper, that is quite a complex task, whereas Audacity's auto-ducking feature is easy to apply and very effective. This is not an Audacity versus Reaper discussion. There are features of Reaper I find very helpful. However, I believe you sold Audacity short in your summary. Its screen reader accessibility under Windows is not, as you described, in reasonable shape. The development team has worked very hard to make it accessible, and it is very accessible with any Windows screen reader without any add-ons or plugins. Accessibility is also explicitly covered in the manual. I know that one person's mnemonic is another's poison, but I certainly do not find audacity fiddly. Menus are very well organized, and a comprehensive list of customizable shortcut keys is available. In summary, Audacity is not a single track door. It can only record a maximum of one stereo track at a time, but any number of tracks can be recorded and or imported. 
Thanks so much for taking the time to offer that perspective, Andrew. I'm glad to hear that there is an Audacity email list out there specifically geared at blind users. And if anybody happens to be on it, please feel free to share the subscribe information and I will include that in the show notes. It will also be good to get other people's perspectives who've worked successfully in Audacity. It's been some years, you know, you sort of get in a groove and it's been some years since I had a look at Audacity and at the time it was pretty fiddly, but it was quite some time ago and it sounds like they have made some great progress. And I think also one's receptivity to a new application very much depends on where you are, whether you're just looking because you're curious or whether you're looking because there's a need that you have to fill that you can't meet with your current configuration or you're just curious. And I think when I last looked at Audacity a long time ago, I was just curious. So that's why podcasts like this are so important because you can get a range of perspectives. So if anyone has anything else to share about Audacity, do chime in. But it sounds like, you know, don't dismiss it if you're looking for a multi-track environment, particularly for editing. An email from Michael Pantelidis, who tells me he's in Stage 4, Melbourne, Australia. They've got an alert level system there that they call Stages, and it's all getting pretty real and difficult in Melbourne. So wishing you and everybody there all the very best, Michael. He says, keep up the great work you do for us. Thank you so much. Can you please recommend a USB-only dynamic mic? I don't need the XLR option, he says. I'd still recommend the Samsung Q2U for the price. I mean, it does have XLR there if you ever decide to get a mixer. Maybe you never will. But you've got the USB port at the back, so it will connect to your computer without any jiggery-pokery with XLR connectors. And it sounds really good. In my opinion, it does. For the price, it's hard to beat it. You can get, of course, USB condenser mics, but that's not what you're asking about, right? Because then we get into things like the Blue Raspberry and the Blue Yeti and some of those things. But if you're specifically asking about a dynamic mic, hard to go past the Samsung Q2U, and you can hear it in action on this podcast in previous episodes. You can get them in two packs as well pretty easily for a good price. A very similar mic is the Audio-Technica ATR2100. Now, my son Richard who is an audio engineering student, discovered this mic, at least in my world. I hadn't heard of this mic until he bought one and was using it when he was doing his classic rock show on Mushroom FM. It also has a very good sound for the price, and some people prefer it over the Samsung Q2U. Some people prefer the other. You know, microphones are in a quiet taste. But that is another one in a very similar price bracket, with similar functionality, both USB and XLR, should you ever need it. That's the Audio-Technica ATR2100. I think they may have come out with another one in this category as well. Because this is not an accessibility-specific question, you know, sighted people use microphones the same way blind people do, YouTube is a really good source of reviews. There are some very capable, accomplished microphone geeks There's a guy called, if I'm remembering rightly, Podcastage. I think he's the one. I listen to a lot of these YouTube reviews. I think he's the one that goes through and does these really methodical demonstrations of microphones. So you could go to the tube and type in something like USB dynamic microphone review. And I think you'll find a lot of good stuff there. Uh, There are people who have far more knowledge 
of this subject than me. But best of luck. Hi, Jonathan. This is Allison Fallon from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You were talking about people not spell-checking because it looks so unprofessional, and I agree with you. What I really don't like is that they spell-check, but they don't proofread. I know American Council of the Blind, they have community events, which I've really enjoyed. But every week, they have one, and it says, Bored Out of Your Gourd, and it's B-O-A-R-D. Now, yeah, they may have spell-checked it, but it's not the right spelling for the context. And I really don't like that. And it's not just blind people that do that. I have a church newsletter, and they do it too. And so that's something that really bugs me. And I think Braille should have a capital B as well. Yeah, music to my ears in every respect, Alison. Music to my ears. And let me just say that as long as people like you and me keep capitalizing Braille, it will always have a capital B because there ain't no authority going to tell us to disrespect Louis. Long may you continue to capitalize Braille. It is a tough one, I suppose, the spell-checking thing for people who don't have access to Braille. Because is it reasonable, I guess, to ask people to review character by character? (laughs) That is a bit of a tough one, but it just goes to show how important Braille can be. Many years ago now, I came across a poem. It went viral before we used the term going viral. And it was a poem about I have a little spell checker or something. And if you read it with speech, it seemed like a perfectly boring poem. But if you read it with Braille you realized how hilarious it was because it was using all the homonyms and things like that. It was really, really good. So I don't know whether that poem still exists. I'm not going to look it up because if I read it without explaining every spelling error, it wouldn't make sense anyway. Here's Awais Patel, who is a grade 11 student in Edmonton, Canada. And first he talks about smartphone or computer. Personally, he says... I rely on my iPhone as a device to ensure I don't have to switch much between windows because this often complicates things on the PC when several windows are opened at once. I rely on the PC heavily to complete assignments from school, read and access the web and much more. Depending on my iPhone completely is difficult because there aren't enough ports, it does not come with a keyboard And the issues with Braille can be very frustrating when they occur during an important task. Although I have these issues, I love my iPhone and would keep it for as long as I can because it is equally important when compared to the PC. The iPhone allows me to read and access many pieces of text through sources like Bookshare, the web and many others. Another feature I really appreciate is the ability to navigate very quickly using the rotor in Safari and other web browsers. With my Focus 40 Blue 5th generation display, I'm able to do multiple things required to complete a task, such as typing on my PC while searching on iOS. I would still keep the PC between these two devices because it is much more reliable. Those who bring up the concern of speaking to people, I would rely on Zoom and Google Meet to complete this task, as well as my email. Two, great news. 
Recently, Children First Canada started an initiative that allows children and youth across Canada to speak with the Parliament in Ottawa to discuss their issues and why they must be addressed by the government. The Children First Canada Association relied on WebEx, which is very frustrating and difficult to use for me since I depend on JAWS and VoiceOver. Although in iOS, when I downloaded the app, it seemed much more accessible than it was on Windows. After the first meeting, I sent an email expressing my concerns and an explanation of how this prevents me from participating in these social events. As a result, they organized a session where all assistive technology users from across Canada described their issues. In conclusion, they switched over to Zoom, which is probably the best meeting platform I know. Taken together, it is important to understand that some people might ignore the needs of blind people, but not everyone. Well, congratulations, Oase, for the self-advocacy there. You made a difference. You raised the issue constructively, you made your point, and they responded. So that is an absolutely fantastic outcome. And it's also good to hear about that initiative where Parliament in Canada is reaching out to young people. It is critical that young people be encouraged to take part in the political process. So great news all round. Well done. Hey, Jonathan, my name is Anil. I can confirm that you can set up Windows 10 without a requirement of sighted person. Once you able to turn on your PC, finding Plex or power button, stuff like that, and you manage to get into the setup screen, then you can press Control Windows Enter and follow the on-screen instructions. Also, I want to comment on Kelly, who is mentioning that found a video that is music only, which did not have narration. There is interesting add-on that currently in private beta testing process for NVDA, of course, which is called Continual OCR. This is developed by the guy named Jamie Tay from the research which I did about him. I found out that he is very senior accessibility leader in Mozilla. This add-on, what it does is, it finds the text which is appearing on video and reads that text with a delay of 0.5 seconds currently. The developer of this add-on mentions that he aims to get it more real time. Thanks very much, Anil. That does sound like an exciting development, and we'll watch that with interest. Jamie, of course, also used to work for NV Access and was a key developer there for quite some time, and he has been a key person in the development of Osara as well, which many of us are using with Reaper, and, of course, is helping to put this podcast together. Email from Mickey Quenza, who says, Hi, I would like to discuss the method I'm using to capture interesting technical information or anything that captures my eye. The thing is that it's hard to put information in a file without distracting yourself from what you're reading. I belong to many of the I slash O groups. I find those groups very interesting with lots of information. 
Currently, I'm using notes to organize my messages. I have folders for categories and notes in each category. I'd like to know how other people are doing this. I find that getting the thread of the discussion in a compact manner so that you don't have to read all the header footer information over and over again is very frustrating. Because it is portable, I'm using my iPhone for this task. I'm also using Microsoft Outlook, but I am wondering if there's a better email client. With Microsoft Outlook, I can use the rotor and find the messages button and flip down to the next message quickly. That's working pretty well. But if you want to copy and paste information into a note so that you have one uncomplicated thread, it's not very easy. I'd like to know what people are doing. Maybe a podcast with techniques that a person could learn from might be cool. Lovely to hear from you, Mickey. Always good to hear from a legend in assistive technology, you know. You're super organized, being all methodical and organizing things like that. I agree with you. The ability of the Notes app to create folders and then store information in folders is very cool. One defect I found of this system was that at least in iOS 13, to be fair, I have not tried this in the betas of 14, would not let you store a note in a specific folder right away with Siri. So you couldn't appear to say, create a note called whatever it is in my, say, Mosin at large folder, and it would store it. So you would have to take the note, it would go into the main notes area, and then you'd have to move it to your Mosin at large folder manually. Don't know if that's been addressed in iOS 14, but it would be a nice little addition. I'm intrigued to hear that you are using Microsoft Outlook on your phone rather than the Apple Mail client. I have used Outlook on and off, and I really like the fact that in one app, you've got your calendar and your mail. I mean, it very much is an Outlook experience on your phone. The one thing that took me away from it was the thing that you alluded to there, that when you open an email message in Outlook, focus is not placed at the top of the message like it is in Apple Mail. And it's those little efficiencies that Apple takes care of that really make a difference. I don't want to have to flick through header information in an email when I open it. And with Apple Mail, you just get right at the top of the message. You can perform a two-finger flick down to read all and start reading from the top of the message. So you might want to give Apple Mail another go and see if you like that better. It is good to hear that Microsoft Outlook on the iPhone is now supporting message threading so well. I don't know if it did when I was looking at it. These things evolve over time, of course. So that is good news. But for me, that focus issue is a bit of a distraction for me and one of the reasons why I haven't been bothering with Outlook. But I'd be keen to hear what others think about email clients in iOS Apple Mail versus Outlook, or are you using something else? Sometimes it's the little under-the-radar products, kind of like Castro in the podcast arena, that really do surprise and delight. You alluded to text selection there. There is a way to select text within emails and other places as well, and you may or may not be aware of this, and even if you are, Mickey, maybe someone else listening may not be. When you're in an email message, use your rotor to find the option that says text selection. When that is selected in your rotor, you can then flick up and down to determine how much text will be selected or deselected when you flick left and right. 
So you can choose by words, characters, uh, pages, I think, which sort of select some arbitrary amount of material. When you've selected the material you want, and you can get quite good at this, because you can select, say, a page, and then as you get close to the end of the passage you want to select, you can then go to words and just select a few more words. When you've got it right, when you've selected what you want, you can then use the rotor to go to edit and choose copy to clipboard. If you have a Bluetooth keyboard to hand, I'm pretty sure that pushing command with C at that point will probably do the same job. So all of that is built in. And I use this quite a bit, for example, if I get tracking numbers that I want to put into my favorite parcel tracking app, which is simply called Parcel. And I will just uh, select the text, copy it to the clipboard, and then open the Parcel app. So all of that is built into, certainly you can get to it with Apple Mail. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't also be exposed in Microsoft Outlook. In terms of Notes apps, I think you're doing pretty well by doing what you're doing with Notes. You could use Ulysses for the same thing, by the way. So I tend to use Ulysses for all sorts of things. I don't use the Notes app at all anymore now that I have Ulysses, because with Ulysses, you can also create groups of documents. You could have a Ulysses group for, say, different lists that you're on or different categories of information that you want to store. And the nice thing about that, of course, is that if you install the Writage plugin for Microsoft Word, which I covered a few episodes ago, you could easily edit that information on your PC or on a Windows machine and in Ulysses, and it would all just work seamlessly if you get things set up that way. So that's quite nice. And your folder structure would be preserved. There's Evernote, of course, and there is Microsoft OneNote, which I haven't used very much, I have to say. So there are quite a few options in this space, and you raise a really interesting point. So I would be keen to hear what people are using for little note-takey types of functions on their phone and perhaps on their computer as well, and whether you've found synchronization is possible. Certainly there's a OneNote for iOS, and of course OneNote began on Windows, so that may be an option, Evernote as well. So let's open it up. Hi Jonathan, it's Daniel Summero here with a question. Where on earth did you get that dude sound effect that you use sometimes? It's really funny, it's really cool. Is it something Jam made when they made the jingles, or how did that work? Anyway, love your show, and this contribution is nice and brief, so I don't know, editing may not be recorded, it may, I don't know how you do that stuff. But anyway, where did you get that sound effect? Dude. Ah, yes, you mean the one that goes... Dude! Well, to answer that question, we need to hear a little bit from the the man who is now the British Prime Minister, Mr Boris Johnson. Yeah! And we know the mantra of the campaign that has just gone by. In case you've forgotten it, you probably have. It's always, always covered. It is deliver Brexit, unite the country and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. And that is what we're going to do. We're going to defeat Jeremy Corbyn. And I know, I know some, some wag has already pointed out that deliver, unite and defeat was not the perfect acronym for an election campaign, since unfortunately it spells dud. But they forgot the final E, my friends. E for energise. 
And I say, I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done on October the 31st. We're going to take advantage of all the opportunities that it will bring in a new spirit of can do. <laughs> when that was actually going out live, I was listening. I think it was about 11 o'clock at night here in New Zealand. And when he did that dude thing with his sort of English accent, I was in a fit of uncontrollable laughter and I knew I had to grab that for a button. So thank you, Boris. Thank you. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.